Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. We've been looking at the issue or the question, why is it so hard to believe in today's world? Our text today is more of an anti-text, if there is such a thing, than a text upon which the sermon will be based. I hope to make this clear as we go along. In his most recent book, Music, Modernity, and God, Essays and Listening, Jeremy Begbie writes, I understand modernity to refer primarily to a cluster of attitudes or mindsets inextricably bound up with social and cultural practices. In this book, in one of the chapters, he engages uh, John Butt, who has written a book called Bach's Dialogue with Modernity, Perspectives on the Passions in which he examines uh, both of the passions by Bach, but primarily St. Matthew's passion. And he writes, well, Begbie writes of uh, Butt's view of modernity, includes a vision of disembedded humans in a disenchanted universe, the accessibility and adaptability of the natural world through human reason, yielding potentially unlimited knowledge, the privatization of religion, the independent individual self, wary of an unthinking reliance on past tradition. But himself writes, religious beliefs are not necessarily to be excluded with the modern mindset. Rather, they are no longer seamlessly connected with whatever happens in the empirical realm and can inhere in, different, in a different sphere, even within personal experience. Hence, in modernity, one could be, an, could be active as a rational scientist while attuned to the feelings and traditional practice of religion, without necessarily feeling the need to reconcile the two. Religion simply becomes a private matter, with its own rules and practices, which do not necessarily connect or interact with other, all other aspects of life. And in reading these descriptions of modernity, I couldn't help but feel that the church is much more modern than the surrounding culture in many ways. I was reminded last Sunday after the sermon, uh, uh, James, Dave and I were talking about the quote I meant, uh, read from Bill Bryson, it, which reflects, I think, a far more humble attitude than what is oftentimes, well, what was found traditionally in modernity, but what is found in the church today. If, in fact, you were a cultural anthropologist and you were studying uh, the United States in 2015 and you were looking for an institution that defends modernity and many of its precepts and principles, the church, in fact, might be that institution. The accessibility and adaptability of the natural world through human reason, the privatization of religion, the independent individual self, uh, disembedded humans in a disenchanted universe. These mark much of the thinking in the church today. And the result is that oftentimes our church, uh, the church's thinking, our thinking is much more modern than it is biblical. And this in part explains why it is so hard to believe in today's world. How did we get here? This is a question I've been attempting to answer in this series. And today I want to approach it from a different angle and suggest at least three reasons for why the church is where it is today. To begin with, just to remind you, to review back when we started this series, when we looked at the gospel, the good news. You may remember that for something to qualify as good news, there are four things that are required. The first is that there is an announcement that something has happened. Secondly, that thing that has happened happens within a larger context. 
and therefore it makes sense within that context. Thirdly, it reveals a new future because of this thing that has happened within this context. Suddenly the future looks different. And lastly, it also transforms the present moment. For those of us who live after the resurrection, as I have mentioned in this series, we find that the end of the story, the new creation, breaks through in the middle of the story when Jesus is raised from the dead. And so we are given insight and understanding into where the story is headed, that is the new creation. And so Jesus commissions his disciples to tell people this story, the good news. They are to go into all the world and to proclaim the good news. But does the church, in fact, believe the good news or the gospel? There are at least three problems that prevent many in the church today from grasping the idea of the good news. And as I said at the beginning, oftentimes it's no longer gospel or good news, it's good advice. That this is something you might want to look into, it will make you a bit happier, things will go smoother in your life if you just hold to these principles. I'm grateful to N.T. Wright and his recent book, Simply Good News, uh, for many of the ideas I have here today. So three problems. The first is the way in which the church has presented the good news. Most people in the West think of Christianity as a system. It's a religious system, uh, a system of salvation, a moral system. They don't think of it, and oftentimes we don't think of it as news. The message that something has happened. The result of which everything is different. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were originally written to say, this is what has just happened. And everything is now different because of these events. But oftentimes when people today speak of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're simply speaking of four books about Jesus. And when they speak of preaching the good news or the gospel, they usually mean explaining to people how they can become Christians or what it means that Jesus died for your sins or telling people how to be sure that they're going to heaven. Let's be clear. All of these are important, but this is not the good news in and of itself. If you think about it, oftentimes when people share the gospel with people, this is something of what they say. You are a sinner and you deserve death and hell. Jesus died in your place. Believe in him and you'll go to heaven. Or it can be abbreviated down to Jesus died in my place, taking my punishment. Without question, this is true. But the Bible says a lot more about Jesus and his death than simply he died for your sins. There is more to Jesus' death than this And there's more to the gospel than simply the story of Jesus' death. If we take the statement, Jesus died for your sins, as the only real meaning of the gospel, it can so easily be distorted, and I would argue it has been. It becomes a statement that has no context. It's looking for context. The Bible does, in fact, provide a very rich context. We have 39 books in the Old Testament, even before we get to the story of what Jesus did. But in many Christian traditions, recently, in the last 300 years, I would say this context is largely ignored. So, what happens is, it requires context. People provide their own context, and it goes something like this. There is a God. This God is angry. 
He's angry with humans because of their sin. This God has the right, the duty, and the desire to punish us all. We are all headed for an eternal torment in hell. But this angry God decided to vent his fury on someone else, someone who happened to be completely innocent, his very own son. And so his anger, his wrath was quenched. We no longer face that terrible destiny. And all we have to do is believe and we will be safe. This is not completely wrong. But it is misleading in that it takes a truth that Jesus died into your place and puts it in the wrong context where it does not make the sense that was intended. It doesn't make the same sense as if you put it in its right context. There are at least two signs that something is wrong with this presentation, this view of the gospel. The first is, when you read the Bible, the various statements about the death of Jesus, particularly in the gospels and in the epistles, come within a double context, that is, of creation and covenant. Creation, which states that God is the creator. He is the one to whom the whole world belongs. He is the one who wants to make things right. Covenant means a formal pledge. God called Israel to be his people. He rescued them from slavery. He brought them to the promised land. He guided them through various trials and troubles, all the way up through their history to the sending of the Messiah. And if you say Jesus died for my sins and I'm going to heaven, you've not spoken a word about God as creator and you've not said a word about God and covenant. The second is that both of these stories, creation and covenant, have the point of it is that there is God who masterminds both. And this is a God of love, a God of self-giving, merciful, reconciling, healing and restorative love. You might not know this if you hear the way that the gospel is often presented. John 3.16, at least when I was young, was usually the first memory verse that kids learned in Sunday school. And it begins, for God so loved the world. It is not for God so hated the world. But in fact, oftentimes that is, I think, the, the sense that people get in the way that the gospel is presented. Some would say, yes, but Damon, have you read the book of Romans? And that, in fact, is where we are today, in which Paul lays out the gospel, I think, more clearly than any place else in the New Testament. And it seems to begin by insisting that God is mad, that God is angry, his wrath is being poured out against sinners. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, Jesus died in your place. But Paul does more than that. He does at least four other things which make the picture, I think, a very different picture than what is often presented. First of all, he makes it clear that God's anger or God's wrath is a result of human beings distorting his creation. If you read the rest of chapter 1, you in fact will see that God's anger is because of what has been done to creation, including human nature that God created. God's rejection of evil is in fact the natural outflowing of his love. It is because he loves his creation and his creatures that he is angry and he is determined to make things right, to put things right. It is only because he loves his creation that he is utterly determined to put everything right and he is utterly opposed to everything that tries to destroy his creation. 
In fact, as Paul's argument in the book of Romans progresses, you find that the central passage is framed not in terms of God's wrath, but in terms of God's powerful and rescuing love. And we come to the end of chapter 8 when he asks the wonderful question, what can separate us from the love of God? And the answer is nothing. The second thing that Paul does is he makes it clear that what has happened as a result of Jesus coming into the world is the fulfillment of God's promises or his covenant to Abraham. This happens in chapter 4. Um, so God made promises and Jesus is in fact the fulfilling of those promises. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For what I received I pass on to you of first importance. And here he's talking about the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. You're like, well, there it is, David, there it is. Christ died for our sins. But he goes on to say, according to the scriptures. This is the context, and the context is that of a promise that God made to Abraham. Paul is not saying, I can find text to prove my point. He is saying, this is the story of scripture. Thirdly, he makes it clear that the goal of God's rescue operation, the main aim of Jesus coming and dying, is the transforming and the restoration of all creation. This is almost the opposite of what we oftentimes hear with regard to the good news. The gospel is often presented in terms of heaven as the goal. And that this, this here is the stage to be broken down when everything, when the play is over, we're going to all go to heaven. And that this here is nothing. And that if you talk about the present creation, you're being worldly and potentially dangerous and you're distracting yourself from the main task of saving souls. If you look at Romans chapter 8, which the promise of forgiveness was found today, there is nothing about souls, there is nothing about heaven. But it does speak of bodies. It does speak of resurrection bodies as we will have in the new creation. We should not think of the good news as an escapist message in which we are out of here and we go to heaven. And then lastly, I think Paul makes it clear that the good news is much more about a coronation than it is about a sacrifice. And here we come to what I've called our antitext. I think a lot of people seem to think that you know the first 15 verses of Romans 1 are just sort of intro, you know, fluff. And, and then in verse number 16, Paul really gets to it. And this is really sort of the first word that you hear from Paul in Romans. If you look at verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here Paul talks about the righteousness of God and salvation. And these are great and central themes. But this is not where the book of Romans begins. Let's go to the beginning. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Actually, in verse 4 as well. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So there it is. It's the good news. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
This is where the book of Romans begins. It is not primarily about his sacrifice. That is important. Okay. But it is about the fact that he is the son of David. He's the Messiah. He is royalty and he is the son of God. He is divine. Throughout Paul's letters, we read about Jesus establishing his rule. That he is the Lord Jesus. And perhaps that means less to us than it should. But certainly the people in Paul's days understood what that meant. Because that was a title, Lord was reserved for Caesar. And to say that in fact Jesus is Lord was in fact a very uh, reactionary thing to say. Because people say, no, no, Caesar is Lord. And Paul would come along and say that Jesus is Lord. Now, again, I want to be clear. We cannot bypass or downplay the importance of the death of Jesus. It is central. It is central to what is done. But it makes sense within this picture. The love of God, the covenant of God, the plan of God for the fulfillment of creation, not the abolition of creation, and the coronation of Jesus as the rightful Lord. In fact, you may have, if you can remember one of our earlier hymns today, Ferris Lord Jesus. Ruler of all nature. Well, are those just words we're singing, or in fact, do we believe that to be the case? If we imagine a gospel that has forgotten about creation and covenant, if we imagine a gospel with an angry God who is only pacified by the blood of an innocent victim, if we imagine a gospel that instead of restoring and completing the work of creation is instead prepared to throw it all away, and take people to a different location, a disembodied heaven, then that is much more pagan than it is Christian. It is paganism that treats creation as a prison from which we wish to escape, rather than something that the Creator is determined to complete. It is paganism that discounts the story of God's covenant with Israel. That's just a distraction. That's something that happened so long ago, and we shouldn't be distracted by it. It is a paganism that imagines a malevolent deity who is determined to take his wrath out on somebody, somewhere, because of his anger. Wright argues that this kind of picture is both attractive and repulsive. It is attractive because, in fact, it's, it's quite clear, it's clear cut. I mean, here's the diagnosis, here's the problem, here's the solution. But it is repulsive because it seems to require that we set aside every shred of moral value that we ever have known or hold dear to embrace a picture of a terrifying and violent God. Those who preach this kind of a gospel are in fact used to negative reactions. And their answer is, well, of course, it's a scandal of the cross. People are offended by the message. Um, And it is true that the gospel is a scandal. Um, But when you share a distorted view of the gospel, don't take refuge in saying, well, you know, of course it's being rejected because people don't like the truth. What we've been talking about thus far is a problem, I think, that goes back to the Middle Ages and certainly continues on uh, through uh, the Renaissance. When you look at paintings in which people are constantly being told that the whole point is to get out of here, to get to heaven. And the problem is you have an angry God who doesn't seem to want you there in the first place. When the Reformation broke out, it seemed that their focus was, in fact, the grace of God. That God, in fact, was a God of grace. So that's the first problem. 
that what many of us have grown up with or we have heard you know, by other people who call themselves Christian is in fact a distorted vision of the gospel. It is not the good news at all. The second problem is that the church has become vulnerable to a new cultural movement. And we've been looking at that movement. It is modernity. As many Christians believe that the point was to get out of here and to get to heaven, God and the world were split apart. So this is this life and then God's with the heaven part. And so you end up, and it's interesting, it's, it's somewhat ironic that the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the Renaissance were reacting against a two-tiered view of society where you have the clergy and the laity. And so they're like, let's get rid of that. But then they ended up creating another two-tier system. And this is, you have the spiritual and then you have the secular that is the business of everyday life. God is pushed upstairs, and Wright puts it this way, like a dysfunctional and embarrassing elderly relative. Um, Keep him upstairs. Keep him in the attic. People who still feel affection for him are welcome to go and visit him, um, perhaps by prayer or Sunday worship. Uh, People who still believe that he mattered think that he'll really matter after we die, and and we'll go to heaven, and then we'll be with him forever. But they believe that he has nothing, absolutely nothing to say about how to run the downstairs part of the world. Somehow the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, has either been forgotten or reinterpreted. People have also forgotten what Jesus said before his ascension. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What we find are two extremes, one which thinks that this world is worldly and unspiritual and one which embraces the possibility of social and political change, that that's the meaning of the good news, that that's what the good news is. It's all about changing the world politically. Before the modern age, people had a sense that, in fact, the world was complex, but it was complete. It was a whole. It was a gift from God. This is something that God had created. With the coming of modernity and the Enlightenment, people began to pull it apart, to be studied. And we are the beneficiaries of that. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is something we can totally dismiss. But in pulling things apart, God was relegated to the upstairs, you know, upstairs room, and the real world, if you wish, downstairs is where human beings would be. God will do the spiritual things and we'll do the practical things. We'll make money, we'll gain power, we'll conquer territory, you name it, that's what we will do. And so people who still wanted to embrace the Christian faith were left with the spiritual part. And in fact, some were happy enough to do this. That in fact, we'll, we are the spiritual ones, yes, and this is what we will do. And so the gospel came to be explained as having a personal relationship with God, fellowship with God. Not a word about creation, because after all, that's the downstairs part. The upstairs part is the spiritual uh, relationship we have with God. The reality is, when we hear the good news, it is not a world that is split into two. It is a world that God is, in fact, redeeming. The trouble with both of these views is that the people upstairs and the people downstairs, in fact, want a split world. This is how they want things. 
The unbelievers are downstairs, if you wish, the secularists. They're not all unbelievers, but they're downstairs. They've locked the door. Okay, they don't want those yahoos from upstairs coming down and messing things up. The people upstairs, we'll call them the believers, for lack of a better way to put it, are always, well, not always, but from time to time, yelling messages down to the people downstairs that they need to get their act together. They need to move upstairs. And both of these are very sad and tragic visions of reality. Within this way of thinking, two movements came along, which reinforced this problem of a split-level universe. And bear with me, I think, in some ways, Becca might be better qualified to talk about this. But two of the things that emerged was the rationalist movement and the romantic movement. Rationalism was the idea that human beings could know things primarily by reason, rather than through our senses. It also can refer to the fact that knowledge about God and the Christian truth about the Christian faith can come through reason, sometimes even in the place of revelation. One of the consequences is, for believers and unbelievers alike, is there came, in fact, an approach that focused on reasoned out propositions. This is what we believe. And it all became very propositional. For believers, it meant a defense of the Christian faith using rationalist apologetics. I will convince you. I will use reason and give you good reasons why the Christian faith is true. In the process, the church has run the risk of believing that the Christian faith is not about what happened. It's not good news. Okay? But rather, it's what, what we might learn from these things. And so, in that sense, it becomes good advice rather than good news. Again, I must be, I want to be clear. Reason is not bad, okay? That properly understood, it is, in fact, an ally of the Christian faith. And I think the renewal of all human life includes the renewal of human thought, a vital part of God's creations or his creative plan. But there are always dangers. There are always dangers. So now all beliefs are expressed in crisp, sharp propositions. This is what the Christian faith is. And then there's an insistence that true Christianity means believing exactly these propositions. And then faith or belief is in fact defined as believing these propositions so we're out of here and we can get to heaven. And again, this is a distortion of the truth. The second movement is romanticism. And like rationalism, it means different things to different people. But at its heart, it represents a rejection of rationalism, cold rationalism, an embrace of a warm, life-affirming, intuitive awareness of the world. It includes the possibility of mystical experience and insight. The rationalistic Christian will say, I can prove the truth. The romantic Christian says, trust me, you'll find your heart strangely warmed. This appeal to experience and feeling appears to trump everything. Like reason, experience and feeling are central parts of what it means to be human which means they are central parts of what it means to be a Christian. Christians have, from the very beginning, been aware of the presence of the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And through Jesus, we come to know the Father. But as with reason, our feelings cannot be fully trusted. 
and certainly not privileged the way that romantics would have us to do. Wright points out in his book that the problem with both rationalism and romanticism is that they divert attention from the central message of the gospel. He goes on to say they try to get the fruits, Christianity makes sense for the uh, rationalist, or Christianity does involve a personal experience of God's presence and love for the romantics, without the root. The fruits without the root. That Christianity is about the gospel. That something has happened. It is the good news that Jesus has come into the world. Both of these movements have led many in the church away from the central emphasis of the gospel. The third thing that has brought us to where we are today is a belief that world history turned a defining point. There was a defining turning point in human history, not in the first century, but in the 18th century. Ever since the middle of the 18th century, people have said to themselves and to one another that a great change has come over the world. We have entered the modern period. The world is now a different place. And so it is. The changes have been remarkable. And we don't have the time to even begin to scratch the surface of this. Uh, you could say, talk about travel, moving from rail cars to cars, automobiles to airplanes. In medicine, anesthetics and antibiotics. I don't know which one of us would want to live 100 or 200 years ago in terms of medical care. But as a result of these amazing changes, and they are amazing and dramatic changes, people have come to believe that everything that happened before that was marked by superstition and ignorance. That without modern science, we wouldn't know what the world was. We wouldn't know what it was like. But, almost said thank God, but if there is no God, but we have escaped that prison. We have left the darkness behind. And now we live in an age of freedom, the freedom to do what we want without fearing any deity. Many, if not most, consciously or unconsciously, take it for granted that this is the great turning point in human history. And it happened with the rise of the modern world. So everything is organized around that. So if, in fact, you hear people saying that now that we live in the 21st century, or now that we live in the modern age, dot, dot, dot. What they're saying basically is all that stuff beforehand is useless and thank goodness we have escaped from that darkness. But for the early church, following Jesus' announcement, declaring the good news, that through his death and resurrection, the kingdom he announced has been launched, they believe that to be the central turning point in human history. Not what happened in the 18th century, but what happened in the first. And as Christians, we must affirm this if, in fact, we hold to the good news. If we believe the gospel, if we believe in the good news, and what are the four components? First of all, the announcement that an event that has happened. God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Secondly, a larger context or backstory with which it makes sense, or within which it makes sense, as Paul puts it, according to the scriptures. Thirdly, a sudden revealing of a new future that lies ahead. Jesus was raised from the dead. 
and then a transformation of the present moment. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. For those who, are, who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. And this is not a rejection of God's creation, but rather an affirming of the new creation. Paul is saying the good news is that things have changed. Everything has changed. And so it is the coming of Jesus into the world that in fact is the turning point of human history. That is what has changed everything. And in, in some small way, people, whether they know it or not, are acknowledging that when they follow, it used to be B.C. and A.D., and now they want to be more neutral, so it's B.C.E. before the Common Era, and then Common Era, but the dividing point is still the coming of Jesus into the world. Without question, what Paul writes in our anti-text today is true. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. But living in the modern world, affected by modernity, we have shrunk the gospel into something much, much less than what it truly is. It is almost as though something is being constructed and they've put you know, these green screens around it and there's a hole poked into it and you can look in and you can see a certain amount of it but you're only seeing a certain part of it. You're not seeing the whole thing. In the same way, the gospel is much more than Jesus dying for our sins. That is true. And it is important. But the good news is that human history has changed. That Jesus, God in the flesh, came into the world and in his resurrection everything has changed it is in fact a new age his victory over death that is the good news and he tells his followers that they are to proclaim the good news and I don't know if you've ever caught this in one of the uh, in one of the versions that we find in the gospels that we are to preach the gospel to every creature you mean people, right? We're supposed to preach to people, right? Uh, we're losing a sense that, in fact, it is God's creation that is being redeemed and restored. The gospel is good news. But if we, if we shrink it into something less than what it is, if we don't have the context of creation and covenant... If, in fact, God is the grumpy relative upstairs and will take care of everything downstairs, if we think the 18th century is what changed the world, then we make it much more difficult to believe God and his truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful that you sent your Son into the world. was in fact an overwhelming thing so much so that to make it more manageable sometimes we treat it as less than what it was and being human we are self-centered we think it's all about us we forget about your creation we forget about your promises and we think only of ourselves and in the process 
the gospel becomes advice or something just to hold on to, not something that announces that something dramatic in fact has happened. Thank you for coming into the world. Thank you for making the world and for sending your son to restore it, to redeem it, to point us all toward the new creation. We live in a culture in which, we, in which what we've just talked about seems incredible, unbelievable. Even for many in the church, this seems unbelievable because they have taken your truth and shrunk it down. I think we're all guilty of that. By your grace, by your spirit, may we come to see the fullness of the good news. and worship you for your goodness. I thank you that you've called us together today to worship you. We pray for those that aren't able to be here today uh, for whatever reason. May they have a sense of your presence wherever they are. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray through Jesus and in his name. Amen.